I'm Jonathan Bastian, and this is KCRW's Foxhole. This week, finding poetry in the pandemic. California poet and Zen Buddhist Jane Hirschfield says poetry always finds a way to connect the deepest parts of us and can provide new perspectives during tumultuous times. It's a bit like water. It will find the smallest crack of entry and it will travel to that place and it will spread. It will disseminate itself. It will it will try to reach new destinations. Then Christian Wyman is a professor and poet at Yale's Divinity School. He says in this pandemic, he hasn't been using the word God as much as normal, even though it's very much on his mind. I almost feel like it would be helpful for us as a culture if we could learn to live toward God without needing a name for it. And poetry for me is one of the best ways of helping yourself do that. Poetry of the moment from Zen and Western perspectives, all coming up on KCRW's Foxhole. Jane Hirschfield is a poet whose work has only grown more vital, more original, and more relevant in the current moment. Now in her late 60s, her poems about climate change have circulated widely and have been used as battle cries among activists. Hirschfield, though, is also a deeply spiritual poet. In her early adulthood, she put aside her writing to study Zen Buddhism for eight years in San Francisco. And though she may not call herself strictly a Zen poet, the essence of that tradition is infused in her work. In her collections, there is a heightened sense of silence, of noticing, of reflection, and a belief that poetry is inherently suited to times of upheaval. So with the pandemic still changing the fabric of life, it seemed appropriate to check in with Hirschfield from her home in Northern California, as she just released her newest collection of poems called Ledger. Jane Hirschfield, thanks for joining us today on KCRW. You're very welcome. It's great to be talking with you. Well, here we are in this 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 radically different moment, and and I wanted to kind of check in with you and go back a few months. You had just released this amazing new book that you'd been working on, I know, for years. And and if I have this correct, you were kind of in the middle of this book tour. Is that right? When the news uh, kind of was coming through that this was going to be a serious virus. I was at the very beginning of the book tour the week the world changed. So I went to New York City to read at the 92nd Street Y on March 9th. And I was already disinfecting my plane seat, disinfecting my hotel room, being careful to carry my own pen, not to shake hands with people. But the auditorium was full. Mm -hmm. It was a normal reading. The next night I was in Chicago, March 10th, which was the book's official pub date. Same thing, a full auditorium, a normal reading, but being very careful. March 11th, I went to Seattle, which was at that time the epicenter in in this country. And it was a very small turnout. The store owner had disinfected the entire events room himself. There were about one fifth the usual number of people who come to my readings there. And I flew home March 12th to what would have been my local book launch, and uh, that was canceled, and everything else going forward was canceled. And I, you know, I woke up between the 10th when all the emails about cancellations or should we still do this were arriving in my hotel room. On March 11th, I added a new poem to my reading, which was the poem that has the line in it, you go to sleep in one world and wake in another, because that is what it felt to me. That very night, everything changed. Well, 
it certainly did. And and that poem, I think, is one that has uh, captured a lot of our attention and, and seems so apt, amazingly written before. But but why don't we just jump right into this right now? Because I, I feel like it, it's it's on our minds. If you will, I'd, lo- I'd love to have you read that. I'd be happy to. And I'll just say that what I was thinking about when I when I wrote this poem was coming up was the 50th anniversary of the first moon landing. And so that's what's behind some of the images in it. Uh, thinking about this world where 50 years ago, I was standing there in Central Park, watching the first human beings walk on the moon. Mm. Um, and here we are yeah. in this world. You go to sleep in one room and wake in another. You go to sleep in one room and wake in another. You go to sleep in one time and wake in another. Men land on the moon, viewed in black and white, in static, on a big screen in Central Park, standing in darkness with others. Your grandfather did not see this. Your grandchildren will not see this. Soon now, 50 years back, Unemphatic, the wheelbarrowed stars hung above. Many days, like a nephew, resemble the one beforehand, but they are not the one beforehand. Each was singular, spendable, eaten with pepper and salt. You go to sleep in one person's bed and wake in another's. Your face after toweling changed from the face that was washed. You go to sleep in one world and wake in another. You who were not your life, nor were stranger to it, you who were not your name, your ribs, your skin, will go as a suitcase that takes inside it the room. Only after you know this can you know this, as a knocked glass that loses what has been spilled, you will know this. You know, it really... It resonates uh, when I hear it now because, um, just as you said, we 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 are now in in another room. We are waking up somewhere else. What what do you, what what's going through your mind, through your body, when you read that and you think of where we are right now? Well, you know, every encounter with a poem is a little bit different, and this time, reading this poem to you just now. The line that stepped forward was the one about each day being singular, spendable, eaten with pepper and salt. And what came to me as I was saying that was both the treasuring of what I now refer to as the old world, mm. uh, those days when we ate with other people and and you know the the shared the shared world, the shared life, but also Part of how I get through my days now is by finding what is delicious in this day. What can I find in this day, which is not only the observation of the immense suffering and the immense uncertainty of the future and every day's blow that comes if you read a newspaper or watch the news. And it makes me think that, um, in fact, a poet is so well-suited to these times. A poet is so well-suited to uh, marveling at the small things or the big things, but in some ways it seems like this is this is the moment for, for the poet to kind of arise and to shine. Do you agree with that? 
Well, I feel both very lucky in that psychologically a person who treasures spending time alone quietly pondering the universe, including its abysses, is singularly well prepared for a pandemic. Um, you know, I am my psyche knows what to do with being sequestered in silence and having something very large that I need to be facing into. I also feel very lucky um, in, a, in a different way, which is poetry is able to serve. And because it is words that travel from hand to hand, tongue to tongue, pocket to pocket, pixel to pixel, a poem can go out into the world and help other people. And I think for many, one of the most difficult parts of all of this, if you're not a frontline person, if you're not an essential worker or a health worker or a caregiver, Many people feel helpless, and one of the great pieces of luck for me is that I have not felt quite so helpless because the world has been returning to me the evidence that my words are helping people, mm. and that makes a tremendous difference. And it must be helping in, in a new and different way now in terms of some of the content as well, because I, you have been so, I think out front in the last decade or even more about how much you care about what's happening to the climate, what's happening to uh, to racial or justice issues in America. But right now, the terrain is so different for us. And, and I'd love for you to kind of explore some of the ways that you're trying to help now with words, I guess. Well, I'm going to partly say that one of the things that is well worth remembering is that the terrain is not so different, mm. that all of the lasting, larger, longer-term crises, they have not been set aside. They are not on pause. Mm. We are on pause. Yeah. Our way of acting and dealing is on pause. But climate change is, you know, being, as everyone knows, uh, given a bit of a breather by the fact that all human beings all over the world have suddenly stopped. And I think about that quite often as an odd, miraculous piece of evidence that when we human beings are able to truly take in, because it is happening faster, because it is happening at the speed of normal daily human perception that you could go outside, you could catch something, and three weeks later you could be on a ventilator in an ICU, mm. we have changed our behavior. And if we can understand that it's only a little bit slower that all those other crises continue to unfold, the crises of the biosphere, the crises of our broken social compact with one another as human beings, this needs addressing, it needs attending. And here we all are doing this strange, totally unexpected exercise. The whole world is pretty much doing something together. And there's something to be seen in that. Um, so I've gone off on a bit of a tangent from from your question, which was how can poems help now in in a time when people are staying home? And, you know, so I have learned to um, video record myself, and mm -hmm. I'm a person who had never taken a selfie. Yeah. And so one of the things I was very sad about, as, as soon as I realized, oh, you know, 50th Earth Day happened this April, yeah. and I'd... 
I I just thought this is going to be an amazing expression of renewal of our of our compact with all beings, and the mountains and the frogs and the and the and the microbes, and suddenly, no events at all. But I was asked, along with the poets Joy Harjo and Naomi Shihab Nye, to record a couple of poems for a special edition of an Earth Day reading, and. You know, a few thousand people saw those mm. poems. Um, so it's we poetry, art, the mind of art, the mind that likes to look at things in a way that includes the emotions, that includes the body, that includes everything we know, all of our history, the science, the imagination. It's a bit like water. It will find the smallest crack of entry. And it will travel to that place, and it will um, spread. It will disseminate itself. It will it will try to reach new destinations, new 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 trees with new thirsty roots. Mm, I love that image, and I, I also think of you in Northern California as as an incredible practitioner of Buddhism, somebody who's lived, uh, who's kind of lived that life. And, and, and I wonder spiritually for you right now, where are you at? What's coming up for you in the last few months with all this happening? You know, that is such an interesting question. My first impulse with training in Zen and training in bringing Zen practice into situations of crisis was to understand that it was my task to stay of even keel so that I could be helpful to others. Yeah. So there was this immediate movement to, you know, it is not my job to fall apart. It is my job to discover ways of staying steady, encouraging self and others, living in this moment's reality, not letting my fears or anxiety, you know, be be uppermost. And for the most part, that is how I have been. Mm -hmm. um, the I, I hear descriptions of other people who have been overwhelmed by anxiety. And thus far, I have had brief moments of that, mm -hmm. which I think are important, because those are the emotions that tell us our response to the world. But then there were a few days when I simply plunged into a sense of the absolute surreality of this moment, the unimaginable surrealness that day after day we are all living in this changed way. And I think it was very important for me to be permeable and vulnerable to that. You know, Buddhist practice is not about um, putting on some armor that lets you travel through the world mm -hmm. and not be touched by it. There, there's a misunderstanding of it that that leads to that idea, but it's not it's not so. Buddhist practice is about sharing with others the knowledge that we live in a world where all our lives go forward in ways connected and interdependent where my own well-being means nothing without the well-being of all the rest of the world. So compassion, empathy, whatever you want to use as language to describe that feeling, but it's a feeling un that isn't conceptual. Mm -hmm. It's an actual sense that if people are suffering 
20 miles from me or 2,000 miles from me or in the house next door. I need to recognize that that too is the shape of my own human life. You know, the word interdependence, interconnectedness has been on my mind so heavily, especially when I think of Buddhism, because in in one level, that that's kind of how the virus spread, was human to human, that we all were moving this thing around. But now it's up to human beings to kind of get us out of this thing, to heal around us. And if nothing else, I mean, what a moment to show that aside from the technological interconnectedness that, wow, biologically, psychologically, we are still very much interconnected, don't you think? I think you are absolutely right that this has been an enormous reminder of the basic ground conditions of reality, that human beings have a tendency to try to forget about, um, understandably, Mm. perhaps, but this experience we are all going through is a reminder of exactly how things have always been. We just didn't see it quite so immediately, quite so fiercely. And, you know, I don't want to say there is anything good at all in a global pandemic, but I can say there is something of reality in a shared fate experience. And that is a reality we need to remember because it matters in every realm of human existence. It matters in our economic ways of going forward with one another. It matters in our politics. It matters in our day-to-day um, uh, dance with the resources of the world we are part of. What do we take from it? What do we give to it? And, you know, I, I think I read in, in a recent interview or something that you had said that I don't know if it was in the last decade or so, you had begun to kind of take this bodhisattva vow a bit more seriously or with more vigor, which is, for those that don't know, kind of the the promise uh, to to end suffering, to, to exercise compassion uh, fully. Have you felt that in your work, a kind of a call to arms? Because I, I've seen a lot, and your poems are, are, are being distributed widely now to activists, to people on the front lines of climate change. Has that been a greater interest to you? It was always an interest to me. If you go back through my early books, you will always find a certain number of poems that were looking at questions of war, looking at questions of equity, looking at questions of our relationship to the natural world. But it is absolutely true that this has strengthened enormously. Um, You know, in, in 2004, I wrote a small poem with the title Global Warming. Uh, it ended up, I was told, being used in an environmental brief mm. to an, given to an appeals court. But that pleased me <laughs> wow. no end. Yep. Um, but especially from 2014 until now, so basically the poems that are in this new book, a, a ferocity came into the poems and a real understanding that I needed to speak for what does not have its own voice because it was so clear that if we continue as we are, we will destroy the beautiful earth we have had the good luck of being born into and bequeath to our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, a tremendously diminished and narrowed environment I look out the window every moment and I still see such beauty. And in a way, 
the oscillation or the tension that runs through this book is the tension between naming my fear of utter catastrophe and cataclysm and destruction and then reminding myself over and over uh, to honor the beauty of the world as it now is. Because after all, we won't work to save things if we don't treasure them. Mm. You only save. Why do we want to fight against injustice so people can live in justice? Why do you want people not to go hungry so they can feast? Why do we want the ecological world not to be poisoned? Because we want the fish to be happy and our great-grandchildren to be happy. Mm. And it makes me wonder in these moments of whether it's the the climate crisis, whether it's the pandemic, how do you, how do you remain hopeful? I, I don't know. There's some lines of a, of a poem of yours, The Wane. This is from years ago. It says, so few grains of happiness measured against all the dark and still the scales balance. You know, there's an optimism I find in your work too, along the way, balanced with the darkness. But where, where does the light come from as you continue well, this work? Thank you. And I'm going to give the next three lines just to finish the poem yeah. out. Um, uh, the world asks of us only the strength we have and we give it. Then it asks more and we give it. And that, that image of the scale, it has shown up in other poems over the years, this balancing act between suffering and beauty, between pain and joy, between the difficult and the things we want absolutely most because they transform our lives into, into um, radiance or giggling, whatever. Um, these, I think it has been for me a hard-won hope. And something that really helped me with this quite a long time ago, in 1985, I was co-translating poems uh, written a thousand and twelve hundred years ago by Japanese women. And a poem came, uh, I was working with a Japanese collaborator who would give me, you know, the literal and I would write down the Japanese words and all, all the possible English meanings below them. And there was one poem that I was quite sure it said something important, but I couldn't figure out what it was saying. So I couldn't translate it until I understood it. And then when I understood it, it changed my life in exactly the way you are asking about. So very short poem, 31 syllables in the Japanese. Although the wind blows terribly here, the moonlight also leaks between the roof planks of this ruined house. That poem changed my life because that was where I really understood that if you do not welcome the cold winds into your life and the leaky roof and the storms and the pain and the suffering and the loss, you will also be cutting yourself off from beauty, moonlight, world, the fullness of your own existence. So that lesson is what gives me hope. And that lesson is what has given me the tool to remember if I possibly can, and I can't every single moment, there are moments of despair, but if I can, in whatever suffering, 
difficulty, pain, overwhelmingly unbearable condition I find myself in, I try to somehow remember that if I just look, there will be some glint of beauty somewhere in the world. I might not feel it in me, but it will be in the world. And to see that, to recognize it, to be able to take it in, that opens a door within yourself to be able to leave the abyss and refine your way to a world you can bear to live in and even more, you want to live in. Those words mean so much to me right now into what's happening. And, and, and I, it just seems like those are more important now than maybe they have been in, in years. Thank you. And, and, you know, for me also, it is, I need, nothing I've ever written or ever said is, is anything uh, before it is advice to myself. Um, you know, we are always finding ways ourselves. Why do I do something every day? Why do I take some action every day? I do it because for me, that is the cure to despair. And I think art making is also a cure for despair, a cure against depression, against giving up. Um, because if you can put one word next to another in a way you never have before, you have stepped into a field of freedom. You might not be able to change anything outside your own house right now, but if you put together two words in a way that a little spark arises from them that has never known itself in this world before, there is freedom. And when there's freedom, when there's any sense of agency, when there's a sense of increased possibility, uh, despair retreats and joy at least waves at you from a distance, a little glimmer, a gleam of moonlight through a, through a gap in a roof. Well, while we have you, I just want to end with, I guess it's your, it's your most recent poem. So I wrote this poem um, the first hours of the first morning of the Bay Area County's first in the country uh, shelter at home protocols. And, you know, as I said earlier, I had been flying around. I came home. I put myself into my own house because of where I had been. But the morning of March 17th was the first day that everyone stopped in my immediate part of the world. And there was an enormous change of worldscape and of soundscape. And in that sudden silence, I began to feel the magnitude of the suffering, the magnitude of the changed lives, and the magnitude of what it means to just be staying home for a very long time. So the poem is called, Today When I Could Do Nothing. Today, when I could do nothing, I saved an ant. It must have come in with the morning paper, still being delivered to those who shelter in place. A morning paper is still an essential service. I am not an essential service. I have coffee and books, time, a garden, 
silence enough to fill cisterns. It must first have walked the morning paper as if lucent ink taking the shape of an ant, then across the laptop computer, warm, then onto the back of a cushion. Small black ant, alone, crossing a navy cushion, moving steadily because that is what it could do. Set outside in the sun, it could not have found again its nest. What then did I save? It did not move as if it was frightened, even while walking my hand, which moved it through swiftness and air. Ant alone, without companions, whose ant heart I could not fathom. How is your life? I wanted to ask. I lifted it, took it outside. This first day when I could do nothing, contribute nothing beyond staying distant from my own kind, I did this. Yeah, thank you. That is maybe the possibility that I was just speaking about. There's always something. There's always some small act of kindness, whether it's to an insect, whether it's to yourself, whether it's polishing a table whose surface has become dull. There's always something you can do. And this is what I discovered when I went listening for who I was that morning. Well, Jane Hirschfield, thank you so much for your time and sharing some of your words with us today. Well, thank you, Jonathan, for your conversation, for your depth of attention, and for what you bring to your listeners. I'm, I'm very grateful to join the conversation for a morning. This is KCRW's Foxhole. I'm Jonathan Bastian. We'll now continue with our theme of finding poetry in the pandemic but from a slightly different vantage point. Christian Wyman has established himself as one of America's premier poets. And whereas Jane Hirschfield comes at poetry from Zen Buddhism, Wyman grew up in West Texas and in a community dominated by conservative Christianity. Wyman has spent a career questioning his faith, exploring the intersection of art and spirituality, and ultimately finding comfort in calling himself a Christian, albeit with a very expansive, inclusive notion of what that means. He now teaches at Yale's Divinity School. Wyman's life has taken a number of twists and turns, including being editor of the prestigious Poetry magazine, to finding out he has a rare form of blood cancer which nearly took his life and still impacts him today. His newest collection of poetry is called Survival is a Style. Well, Christian Wyman, thanks for joining us here on KCRW. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, before we jump into any poetry here, I just wanted to check in with you and ask how you've been over these past couple months and and what's been going through your mind. Well, we've been quarantining with our two uh, twin girls. Our, our, they're, they're both 10 years old and their school ended right at the end or at the beginning of March. And so we did some homeschooling for a while and um, have tried to keep activities for them. One of the best activities we did was actually memorizing poems. At one point I had them memorize Lewis Carroll's Jabberwocky while doing jumping jacks. That was a good, that was a good way to pass the time. Um, it's been really difficult. We've got these, um, you know, our girls have to have activities during the day. We've got to keep them occupied in some way. But also I've 
have a chronic uh, condition. I have a blood cancer that needs treatment regularly. And so I've been in the hospital, going into the hospital every week, um, getting infusions. So I've had to negotiate that, and they've had to negotiate that. That's an added difficulty to the time. You're somebody, of course, that's been dealing, I know you've been dealing with this for for a long time now, and, and it's one reason I wanted to connect with you is because I think that you, more than most people I know, have experienced uh, difficult times, have experienced grief, and have sought meaning in it. And I guess in this time, what, how is poetry still a vital part of your life right now? Oh, it's, it's similar to other times of real urgency in my life when poetry is the vital thing in my life. I uh, have had a really hard time concentrating on anything sustained during this time, and a lot of people have talked about that. A novel is impossible for me. Um, but I can still read poetry, and it's not because it's short, it's because it's, it's so concentrated and even difficult. Some of the, some of the things that have most uh, consoled and rescued me have been quite difficult things. Uh, but I, it's a place for me to put my mind and for it to feel stabilized and also to feel something like uh, truth at the end of it. And so, uh, I mean, I turn to it. I don't know how people live without it, actually. But What kind of poems do you turn to in, in these moments? I mean, you're dealing, of course, with a chronic illness, one that makes you face, uh, face mortality face-to-face. Uh, -face. But what are some of the poems or the poets you would turn to in those moments? Oh, there's all kinds of poems that I turn to in those moments. Some are poets and poems of real urgency, um, I did a translation um, a few years ago of the Russian poet Osip Mandelstam, and I guess that's you and I actually talked then several years ago. That's right. And uh, for our listeners that don't know Osip Mandelstam, he was this incredible Russian poet who uh, is of Jewish origin. He was living under the Stalin regime and, and was eventually sent away to labor camps because of his writing. He's somebody that I think of a lot and return to a lot because he... Uh, was facing his death during the last seven years of his life. He was just faced with what he thought would be his death at any moment, and eventually he was killed by Stalin. And yet you can find in his poems right up until the end a kind of clarity and forcefulness and hopefulness and faithfulness, however you want to define that word, um, in the face of that death. Uh, even on the last day that we have any poems from him, in fact, in, in my book, the, the last poem that uh, is in the book and maybe the last poem that he wrote or memorized, he kept it in his head, and then his wife would memorize them later. They didn't write them down. Uh, the last one is this one called And I Was Alive. And it goes, it's very short. It goes like this. And I was alive in the blizzard of the blossoming pear. Myself I stood in the storm of the bird cherry tree. It was all leaf life and star shower, unerring, self-shattering power, and it was all aimed at me. What is this dire delight, flowering, fleeing, always earth? What is being? What is truth? Blossoms rupture and rapture the air, all hover and hammer, time intensified and time intolerable sweetness, raveling rock. It is now. It is not. Mm. That's a sort of beautiful, 
astonishing expression of consciousness, the, the duality of consciousness being absolutely present and never quite being present in our lives, made at the edge of death. It's amazing that he could you know, rouse himself to that. And I found it very, very helpful, but there are all kinds of other poems that I found uh, myself turning to during this time which are just um, joyful, you know, or, or um, light and uh, able to, and help me to perceive the world in, in ways that I, I forget how to do it. Yeah. Uh, one, can I just tell you one? One, one that occurs to me is this, this one. That I used to be the editor of Poetry Magazine, and one of the happy parts of that job was giving away a, the Ruth Lilly Prize for Lifetime Achievement. And one year, the, it went to the African-American poet Lucille Clifton, and, and she was the only poet. You know, it's fun to call these people up and say, oh, you know, you won a lot of money and we're recognizing mm-hmm. a life's work. And, but she was the only one who actually let out a whoop when I, when I told her. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah, and she has yeah. this poem, and it's about being ready for joy. And it goes, why is what I ask myself Maybe it is the African in me, still trying to get home after all these years. But when I wake to the heat of morning, galloping down the highway of my life, something hopeful rises in me, rises and runs me out into the road, and I lob my fierce thigh high over the rump of the day, and honey, I ride, I ride. I like that. That's a good, funny poem about being ready for joy. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, I love that you brought those to our attention because on one level, I, I could imagine you also say, oh, I only read very, very uh, austere, serious poems about facing death. But, but I've also heard you say in interviews that even when you have been close to death, you look for poems not necessarily about dying, but about, but about life about, I've also heard you say, kind of trying to bring more reality into our world, trying to see more. And I, I guess I'm hearing that in your voice right now, too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, uh, actually, it's the case that you often don't want poetry uh, that merely reiterates or re-expresses or confirms the position that you're in. You want reality, as you say, reality given to you freshly, uh, you want to be able to perceive the world that you're unable to perceive because of your circumstances. Throughout all of this, I wonder, spiritually for you, what, what has been coming up in these last few months? Have you felt any changes in your, in your sense of, of, of God, of, of Christianity, of anything? What, what's been going on? Oh, I try to pay attention. I feel, I feel, in, um, I, feel I do not have anything very coherent to say about that question. People ask me what I think about God, and I begin bumbling. I teach at a divinity school. You can imagine how effective that God is. I, um, in one way, to tell you the truth, uh, I was having this conversation with my wife the other day. I have found it a relief to not be talking about God, because uh, I was actually on leave in the spring, so I wasn't teaching. But then suddenly church ends, and our home group with the people that we go to church with, that ends. And all these different ways in which I usually find myself talking about God have come to an end. And I have not found it painful. I have found it helpful uh, to, to take that word out of circulation for a bit. And uh, I almost feel like... Um, I almost feel like it would be helpful for us as a culture if we could learn to live toward God without needing a name for it. And poetry, poetry for me is one of the best ways of 
helping yourself do that. Please say more about that, that idea of, of a culture that can, can, can live towards or experience but not name. Say, say more. I think the minute we start using words like God and religion, we separate ourselves from those things. We objectify them. And uh, there's something idolatrous in it, something idolatrous in, the, in, think, in, in seeking to limit what God can be in our lives and in, in existence. And inevitably we do that simply by uh, limiting it to language. And you've got to use language. I've got to use words when I talk to you, as T.S. Eliot says. But somehow you need built into that expression a knowledge that the expression is always insufficient. And I find that in poetry all the time. All poets, all poets know that, that they, they know how far short they are falling of the ideal that's in their head all the time. And that in itself is uh, suggestive of and creating of, creative of, mem- of meaning. I've heard you say before, for example, that um, one reason you might look for the divine or for God in poetry is because poetry relies so heavily on metaphor. And metaphor, of course, is perhaps one of the only ways to describe the ineffable or the divine or whatever term you want to use. Oh, absolutely. I think it, I think it um, teaches us that the world, is, the world is made clearer by comparing it with other things, which is a paradox. Um, we, we freshen our sense of reality by comparing it to something unlike what we're looking at. But what that suggests to me is that reality itself is always in flux, too that it is not distinct in the way that, say, our eyes especially perceive it, but that it's in motion, it's fluid, and metaphors not making up something in order for us to see reality anew, it's actually letting us participate in reality as it is. Um, that, like the end of that, uh, end of that Mandelstam poem is a, is a great um, example where the it's time in intensified and time intolerable, sweetness, raveling, rot. Those two things right together. It is now. It is not. You know, one reason I've always been so interested in your work, and I find it so expansive, I find it so welcoming, is that a lot of people in my, let's say, millennial generation are looking for an idea of spirituality, um, don't know where to place it, don't know where to call it, but art seems to be a very natural holding place. Do you think a lot of the feelings, the expressions, the experiences we get in art and poetry can can be one that we can call spiritual? Absolutely. Absolutely. And not just in art, but in, in all kinds of areas of life. I think part of the problem is that we're not accustomed to thinking of religion as being spiritual. Some people who say of themselves, I'm religious, but not spiritual. They turn it around and say, you know. Well, yeah, but absolutely. I think, I, think, uh, I mean, God... If God is an idea, then God truly is dead. I mean, God is an experience first. I mean, you have some sort of experience of the divine that then makes you um, seek out ways of formulating it, whether it's a religion or some kind of practice or whatever it is, but it's an experience first. And the reason that art is so valuable in that regard is because it's pure experience. There's a danger, I think, in that, uh, you know, I know a lot of people who, who do this in making art into an idol and not not allowing the experience of art to translate into something else in life and i know a lot of artists who want to keep that line absolutely separate between art and life and i don't i don't agree with that i think that that the experience of art ought to teach us to um 
as difficult it is to try to formulate that experience, to translate that experience into action of some sort or into faith of some sort, whatever, whatever form it takes. Yeah, that's, I think, a really interesting question. I mean, I've heard you say, for example, faith is an orientation of your life. Um, and if you're an artist, it, it's uh, you're right. You hear so many people that can leave the art in the art workshop and then lead lives that, you know, um, maybe are ethical or maybe not ethical or maybe are kind or maybe not kind, I guess. But there is that line that's drawn. But I think that what I hear in you is it, there's more of a there's more of a through line through it. There's more of a continuation. Yeah, I've been very compelled, and it's not a new compulsion. I mean, since I first started writing poetry, um, I've been obsessed with that uh, link between life and art. And for mm. a long time, I could only feel it as a, a line between the two. I mean, what you gave to one was taken from the other. And at some point, those two things began speaking to each other much more fluently and needed each other in my own life and in my understanding of them. And, and see, I'm still obsessed with that. I still write about it all the time, about the ways in which art can, can bring us back to life. And it's not merely a refuge from it. I mean, I, I know you come from, from your underpinnings are, are Christian in a way. Does, does that, in a way, kind of lead you towards more of a Christian life? One that is, that is more loving, that is more brotherly, uh, that is more open? Or, or is it to kind of to each our own as we figure this out, you know? I think it is to each our own, and I think it's true of even of, of Christians. I think it's one by one by one. Every single person has the same necessity and urgency thrust upon them. And you can deny it, or you can pretend it's not there, but it's there. Now, for me, uh, yes, I am a Christian, and uh, I go to a Christian church and you know have a Christian fellowship at my house, and I've been obsessed with Christianity, too, for all of my life. But it's a, it would be crazy for me to pretend that it's not a constant struggle. And I also feel no sense of exclusiveness to Christianity. You know, I talk to so many people right now in this, in this pandemic, which for many has been a pause. It's been a moment of self-reflection. And I think a lot of people are, are, are wondering about their own faith. They're wondering about their own spiritual natures, and and it, it just seems the more I ask uh, among a lot of young people, there just seems to be filled with confusion primarily. And I know you have been <laughs> reticent to give advice or to talk about what to do, but but for those that don't have a background in this, um, but are interested in some of the things we're talking about, like poetry or art, I don't know. Do you have any words for them in this kind of moment of upheaval? The two things that have been most helpful to me are poetry and fellowship with others, whether they were uh, Christians or not, but, but people who recognized the, the pull of the transcendent and the pull beyond this life that was really this life, uh, the way reality seems to overbrim itself and ask something of us. I think there's no, there's no way around the difficulty of finding out what faith is going to mean in your life. And yet, there's no way that that difficulty should be a heavy burden on you if those two things can exist at the same time. That is, I find, I find that my greatest moments with God are when I let go of the need for God and I'm able just to experience reality in increments or moments. 
And uh, when I don't try to put those together, uh, I feel like God does it for me. And, um, and, and then you're freed in some ways from the need to name these things, mostly freed, um, freed to praise, really. I'd love to hear something from your newest collection um, that, that maybe uh, ha- has something to do with what we're talking about right now, these questions, this moment. Um, what would you like to share with us? I, I have this poem, a short poem in this new book. The book is called Survival is a Style. And it's a poem I wrote several years ago uh, when I was living in Chicago. And um, the lake, those of you who know the lake in Chicago, you know it freezes. And on a bad winter, it can freeze pretty far out. And, and it's quite a thing to see because uh, the waves freeze. It sort of freezes in place. And, and one cold winter day, I was walking by it and just found myself wondering, well, what is still alive underneath there? And what is still alive underneath what seems dead to us? And as often happens with me, I am... Uh, the poem began as almost a kind of chant or song or uh, I had the first I wrote the first stanza there's three short stanzas and then it took me about mm, two years to write the rest of it <laughs> so I had a long pause in the middle of this to to find out what the music and the form would reveal themselves it's called good lord the light and it's a description of that scene Good morning, misery. Goodbye, belief. Good Lord, the light cutting across the lake, so long gone to ice. There is an under, always, through which things still move, breathe, and have their being. Quick colds and crimsons no one needs see to see. Good night, knowledge, goodbye beyond, good God, the winter, one must wonder one's own soul to be. So all of those difficulties and troubles and things that we go through are part of any kind of peace that we come to at the end, the calm existence that is ours when we are worthy of ourselves. It certainly feels that... that things around us have taken on that quality of that frozen lake right now, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And that's why that poem has a particular resonance for me now, because we have to trust that underneath all of this, some kind of vitality is still going on and something that will be made into some new hole in us in time. Well, Christian Wyman, we really appreciate this time and and for uh, joining us here on KCRW. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Well, that's all for today. You've been listening to KCRW's Foxhole. You can learn more about the show at kcrw.com slash foxhole or download the show wherever you get your podcasts. 